I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desires or effort, but on God's mercy. That is what we read in Romans 9. And it's a difficult verse, isn't it? What does it mean? Does it mean anything? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It sounds tautological, logically empty. A is A, if it rains, it rains. But if it means anything beyond logic, isn't it then rather a frightening or depressing or discouraging message? God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and it does not depend on man's desire or effort. What is there for us to do but to sit and wait? What about our actions, our reactions, and our responsibilities when it comes to answering God's call? Now, the question of election and rejection and our responsibility because that is what we are dealing with here, has always been a difficult and hotly debated topic. The Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession, and most extensively the Canons of Dort all address the issue. And Arminius wasn't the first one to reject the biblical teaching in this respect. And some of our evangelical friends who tell us in their testimony that they have decided to follow the Lord Jesus and let the Lord into their heart they will not be the last to misunderstand it now we will this evening not try to cover the whole topic of election and reprobation first of all it would be I think impossible even the synod of Dort concluded that there will always be areas that we will not be able to understand and should not even try to pry into And equally important, the worship service is to listen to God's word, not to have lectures on dogma and doctrine. So we will try to listen to God's word in the section that we have come to this evening on our journey through the book of Neil in the chapters 4 and 5. And we will try to see what light that shed on God's sovereignty over our life and our responsibility for our life. So let's turn then to these chapters. Now, the benefit of spending time in one Bible book is that, of course, we become more familiar with its background. And after our earlier meditations on some of the chapters, I think I can be brief about the historical context. At the end of 2 24 or 2 Chronicles 36, David's house is in decline. Following Josiah, there wasn't a single righteous king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And this notwithstanding the warnings of many of the prophets, lastly Jeremiah, and of course the example of Israel's, the northern kingdom's exile. And then around 600 before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah, takes the king Jehoiachin captive, together with all the treasures of the temple and the palace. And he also took with him to Babylon Judah's elite, the king's officials, the leading men, the fighting force, and the craftsmen, 
And this probably included as one of the promising young people, Daniel, and his friends. He installed an uncle of Jehoiakim called Zedekiah as his vassal king. And nine years later, Zedekiah has the temerity to rebel, probably tempted by Egypt, which promptly let him down, and probably ill-advised by the low quality of the advisors that he was left with. And Nebuchadnezzar, now thoroughly irritated that he has to deal again with these troublesome Jews, comes back and he is now even harsher. Zedekiah's sons are killed before his own eyes, and their eyes are taken out, and his officials are rounded up and executed, neither young nor old is spared. And the final call comes in 2 Chronicles 36, the verses 15 to 20, where after yet another uprising a few years later, both the temple and the palace are burned down, and the ruins, including the walls, torn down. And as we learned from the earlier chapters, after Kings and Chronicles end, the book of Daniel goes on to describe God's continued sovereignty, even while Israel and Judah are in exile and, in effect, wiped off the map. And then later the books of Ezra and Nehemiah pick up the continuing story of God's way with his people towards the promised Messiah after the return of the remnant from exile which already had been foretold by Isaiah and Jeremiah before its beginning. Now, in these chapters, chapter 4 and 5, we find ourselves somewhere halfway in chapter 4 or towards the end, chapter 5, of this period of exile. And Daniel, having been taken from Jerusalem as a teenager, is in chapter 4 a man in the strength of his life, a powerful and respected top official of the king. And in chapter 5, he is probably well into his 80s, called back into action at the advice of probably the Queen Mother, after most likely having been shunted aside by the new king and his younger advisors, as happened, for example, in the case of Rehoboam. So there you have the background to the story, the story of the two kings, And our focus this morning will be on four verses. In chapter 4, the verses 36 and 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, and my counselors and my lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And from chapter 5, also two verses, also the last two verses, last three. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night... Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. But, of course, we will consider them in the context of the full chapters and the wider background. And I would like to summarize the message from God's word for you this evening as follows. Daniel's and our God is the sovereign God who elects and rejects.
And we note two things. How the accepted Nebuchadnezzar rejoices in the gift of his salvation and how the rejected Balthasar himself confirms his condemnation. Daniel's and our God is the sovereign God who elects and rejects. And we know two things. How the accepted Nebuchadnezzar rejoices in the gift of his salvation and how the rejected Balthasar himself confirms his condemnation. So first then, how the elected Nebuchadnezzar rejoices in the gift of his salvation. We know from the previous chapters that Nebuchadnezzar was a hard man, a man of enormous energy and drive, and that had brought him also enormous power. As a conqueror, he was ruthless. Remember his behavior in Judah, and that was no exception. And as a builder, he was restless. Remember the walls of Babylon he built. They were wide enough to turn a chariot on. And the Hanging Gardens, one of the eight wonders of the world. He had made himself the mightiest man on earth, a man of truly great achievements. And then there he is in verse 4. At home in my palace, content and prosperous. And many around us in the world would say, well, why not? Why not? He has made it. Well, why not? Because Nebuchadnezzar had not acknowledged God as his sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar had had several warnings. The first one was in chapter 2, with the dream of the statue. He was the golden head, all right, but the rolling stone coming down from the mountain had crushed and conquered the whole statue. And then there had been in chapter 3, he had built his own statue for himself, and there had been the event of the fiery furnace. And certainly the king had words and praise of praise and admiration, admiration after both the dream and the fiery furnace, and there were promotions for Shadrach, Meshach, Daniel, and Abednego. But the king had not acknowledged Daniel's God as also his own sovereign Lord. Of course, that Israelite God was a powerful one. And as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, up there or over there, not down here in his life, there Nebuchadnezzar himself was the sovereign and then the Lord continues to be gracious to Nebuchadnezzar and he keeps on warning and drawing this king that doesn't get the message. Because after the self-satisfaction and the contentment of verse 4 follows verse 5. I had a dream and the images and the vision that passed through my mind, they terrified me. Yet another stark warning. So stark that it not terrified the king but also Daniel in verse 19. There was in the dream this great tree. It reached into the sky, it provided everything to all, and then it was taken down. A mysterious but also an ominous dream. And then Daniel is called upon to translate and explain God's latest warning to this reluctant man. And three times the king is given a message, so that you may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of man. It was a message to encourage Israel, 
Because easily they could afford that God had lost, that he was out, that he did not count anymore. Because wasn't his territory, the promised land, conquered? And wasn't his temple burned? And the people who worshipped him carried away? God had become invisible for them in the world in which they lived. And we may have that feeling at times today. But God reconfirms in our text that he is the sovereign in word and in deed, and that is still the case today, whatever the local yokels in power in your neck of the wood may think or do. First, it is stated through the voice of the Holy One, the messenger, declaring his verdict over the tree in verse 17, where it says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision by the word of the Holy Ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. And then again it's repeated in Daniel's explanation in in verse 25 and then finally in the verdict when it's executed in verse 31. But still, Nebuchadnezzar does not yield to God's call. He ignores the warning and he continues to ignore that God is his sovereign and he continues to revel in and boast about his own power. It takes the fulfillment of the dream and the third repetition of that warning as we read in the verses 28 to 31. He thought himself to be and to behaved like he was the highest authority on earth. And his famous and infamous boast, is this not the great Babylon that I have built for my honor, declares himself the sovereign and the center of power. But then his royal authority is taken from him, not by man in the form of another conqueror, but by the higher authority in heaven. And not only his power, but also his dignity, his sanity, his humanity, the mightiest man on earth, Go mad. Mad for seven years. As Daniel had predicted, there are no coincidences here. And then we move into the grand finale of this story. Daniel's sovereign God has brought this mightiest man on earth to acknowledge him. That is how the narrator, Nebuchadnezzar himself, starts the chapter of the story. God has drawn Nebuchadnezzar to himself. Now, he was as undeserving as you and I. He was a hard and violent man who killed easily. And he was also a reluctant convert. And the warning of the statue in chapter 2 goes to his head. And he builds a statue to celebrate himself. And the following warning of the fiery furnace was ignored. And the warning of Daniel following his dream was not listened to. But God had decided that this man should acknowledge and proclaim him as the Most High who is sovereign over the kingdoms of man. And then we see the text also hinting at several changes in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar, in the end of chapter 4, no longer orders his underlings, but he witnesses to his own conviction. In chapter 3, verse 29, after the furnace, it is still, Therefore I decree... Hey, you underling, pay tribute to that mighty God. But now at the end of chapter 4, it is I, I myself bow down before the God of Israel. 
And there is, I think, also the hint of a different behavior. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he is powerful, violent, and his servants are afraid of him. But now in chapter 4, verse 36, he says, My nobles, they seek me out. They come to seek him out, his wishes, for his wishes and his views. And however, most importantly, Nebuchadnezzar now rejoices, as we read in these last two verses, in the gift of his salvation. Not only the salvation from madness, but he goes on to rejoice in his acknowledgement of God, also as his sovereign, as the Most High, the King of Heaven. And his closing sentence is now echoing all the warnings that he had in the verses 17, 25, and 32 in our text. So do you hear the praise and the worship in these verses? And do you hear the happiness that transpires in Nebuchadnezzar's final words in this chapter? And do you share his acknowledgement in the first verses of this chapter? The Lord is King. Lift up, O earth, thy voice, and all ye heavens rejoice. From world to world the joy shall ring, the Lord omnipotent is King. So we heard then that the Lord is sovereign and that he elects and rejects. And we heard in the first place how the elected Nebuchadnezzar rejoices in the gift of his salvation. We will in the second place hear how the rejected Belshazzar himself confirms his condemnation. Nebuchadnezzar was already well known to us before this story. He is also well known from secular literature. Belshazzar, on the other hand, appears here for the first time, and for a long time Daniel 5 was the only text referring to this man. He was not known from other historical sources. But more recently, inscriptions are found that mention this Belshazzar. Well, who was he? Belshazzar was most likely not the son and the immediate successor to Nebuchadnezzar. That was a man we know from other sources called Nabonides. Nabonides was probably married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, and he came to succeed Nebuchadnezzar. We don't quite know how. He may have been a usurper. But then we also know that Nabonides appears to have withdrawn from Babylon to Taima, a place in today's Saudi Arabia. Maybe for health or maybe for religious reasons, we don't quite know. And it is known that his absence from Babylon, and therefore also from the king's role in the religious events of Babylon, seem to have resulted in discontent among the population, and possibly contributed to the relatively easy overthrow of his house. And this Nabonidos, Nabonides left his son Belshazzar in charge of Babylon as king, as his representative. He would have in practice have had the power and maybe the title of king, but formally he was only the number two in the kingdom. That may explain why the best he could offer Belshazzar in return for an explanation of the writing on the wall was the third place in the kingdom. 
And to describe Belshazzar as the son of Nebuchadnezzar was probably referring to Nebuchadnezzar as his predecessor or his grandfather. That was quite common at the time. And this man was in charge of Babylon when it fell to the Medes and the Persians. According to secular sources, Babylon fell to Cyrus the Persian, who may have been the same person as the Reyes the Mede. We know that this Persian king Cyrus had a Median mother, through whom he may have inherited at some point in time also the kingdom of the Medes, and was subsequently known by two names. It's a little bit like James VI of Scotland is the same guy as James II of England. And also Daniel 6 verse 28 can be translated in this way. But anyway, be it as it may, Babylon was mighty, strongly fortified and a well-supplied city. And the story goes that the Babylonians were boasting that someone could besiege this city for 70 years and not take it. The food supplies were enormous, its walls were very thick and high, and that may explain why Belshazzar felt comfortable enough to organize a drunken orky while being surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. Xenophon and Herodotus, both Greek historians, carry the story that Cyrus, or his general, captured the city suddenly without much resistance and that he did so by temporarily diverting a river, and his troops were thereupon able to wade through the riverbed under a water gate in the walls, and that they took the city by night while the Babylonians were feasting and dancing. And, says Xenophon, they killed the Babylonian king, a riotous, indulgent, cruel, and godless young man. Well, maybe that is how it went. It would in any case be consistent with what the Bible tells us, in its report on Belshazzar. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar had been an achiever and a conqueror and a builder, Belshazzar was a respectless drunk. And that is how our story of the second king starts. Belshazzar has a drunken orky, and drunk he orders the vessels dedicated to the service of God in the temple in Jerusalem to be brought to drink from. For him and his drunken friends, and his wives, and his mistresses. Now, these vessels were holy vessels, vessels for God, consecrated for use in the temple. And Nebuchadnezzar, ruthless and unconverted though he still was at the time, had recognized that. And he had shown his respect in his way by carefully making an inventory and placing them in the temple of his God. We can read that in Daniel 1, verse 2. And they were, after the destruction of the temple, the only tangible link with the worship service before the exile, and therefore symbolically of great importance to the Jews at the time. They were, again, later to play an important role in the reinstitution of the temple services at the time of Ezra. You can read in the first chapter of Ezra that when the Jews return to Jerusalem, they bring the whole inventory with them. And here Belshazzar, Disregarding the holiness of these vessels and ignoring the respect with which Nebuchadnezzar had treated them, he gets these articles dedicated to God out to bring a drunken toast to his own gods. Gods who, as Daniel so pointedly tells us in verse 23, cannot see, talk, or hear. But God sees and hears. And then the king is warned. 
that is, the writing on the wall. And then the drunk gets frightened. We read it in verse 6. It's described in very clear language. The translation here, which says his limbs gave way, is actually a somewhat prudish translation. Literally, it says, the knots of his loins were loosened. So you might as well translate that the guy lost control over his bladder and more. And in the ensuing fright and panic, a purple robe is promised, the royal collar. It's a great honor to wear, as we know from also the story of Esther and Mordecai. And a gold chain is offered, like mayors today, you know, an important symbol of their importance and authority. And last but not least, the highest position after Belshazzar is made available to whoever can explain the writing and so calm fears. But nobody can read the writing on the wall. A thousand nobles, everybody who was a somebody in that kingdom, plus an army of enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. The whole political and scientific elite of Babylon, and nobody, none of them, can read the writing on the wall. Ironic, isn't it? Frightening, maybe. And then upon the advice of the Queen Mother, Daniel, probably in his 80s, and quite likely retired by Belshazzar, is called for. But you can hear the disdain in Belshazzar's question, are you one of those Jews that my father, one of these funny old foreigners that he used to consult? But Belshazzar gets his answer and more. Because Daniel first put Belshazzar in his place and reminds him of the warnings that he had already had in the verses 20 to 23. And then he gets another warning, a reading of the script on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsim. And the translation, you have been weighed, you have been weighed, and you have been found wanting, and your kingdom will be taken from you. Now the kings in the ancient Near East were absolute monarchs. The ultimate judge of everything and questioning the power was putting your life in danger. And so this verdict is a truly stunning put-down. You think yourself the mighty king, but God has put you in his weighing scale or hung you on his weighing hook. He is judging you, and he has found you wanting. He has concluded you are a failure. And consequently, he is going to take your power away and remove the kingdom from you or you from the kingdom. But then we see that Balthasar listens not. Balthasar only goes on to confirm his condemnation. When we were reading the text, you may have wondered, why did Daniel so brusquely, rudely even, refuse the king's reward in verse 17? You can keep your rewards. You can give them to another. You can get stuffed with your stuff. Seems a bit churlish. And different commentators have different suggestions. But if you think about it, how consistent would it be to suggest that one attributes value to powers and honors of an empire that was about to go under? 
What Belshazzar offered was worthless. Daniel had prophesied to him that Belshazzar's kingdom would be taken from him. How could he then undermine the credibility of his words by accepting positions that shortly wouldn't be Belshazzar's to give anymore? His refusal was yet another warning to Belshazzar. But that is also why Belshazzar, nevertheless proceeding with giving Daniel these gifts, the clothes, the chain, the position, is another insult, a final act of defiance against the sovereign God. Enforcing upon Daniel the honors and the position that he, Daniel, had just himself declared worthless, Belshazzar sets himself once more up against the Lord of heaven. And in his deed, Belshazzar shows his disbelief and his contempt for Daniel and for Daniel's God, even after the shocking warning of the writing on the wall. And so in his last act, he confirms the righteousness of his condemnation. And that condemnation we read in our text then follows swiftly. Just a few words. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. So we have heard how Daniel's and our God is the sovereign God who elects and rejects even kings. And we have noted how the accepted Nebuchadnezzar rejoiced in the gift of his salvation and how the rejected Belshazzar himself confirms his condemnation. So finally then, and in closing, I was at my home in my palace contented and prosperous. And is this not the great Babylon I have built? Maybe for many today, not exactly a palace or Babylon, but the self-satisfaction, doesn't that ring a bell? And they drank the wine and praised the gods of silver and gold. And the whole political and scientific elite couldn't read the writing on the walls. Doesn't that strike you as familiar? Some things never change. But there is more that never changes and is even more constant and permanent. And that is Daniel's and our sovereign God. We saw in chapter 1 that Daniel and our God is the sovereign God, that we are his and not of this world, but in this world, but the world is his. And then we heard in chapter 3 that God is sovereign over the laws of nature and over our personal life. And we heard in chapter 6 of the witnesses willing and unwilling to God's sovereignty and of their fate. And now we have seen in chapter 4 and 5 that he is also the sovereign over man's even King's ultimate destiny. Balthasar was a drunken lout with a crown on his head, and he was left to his own condemnation. And Nebuchadnezzar was a hard and violent man, reluctant to listen, and he is dragged to his salvation. And there are many more of these pairs in the Bible, Abel and Cain, Saul and David, Jacob and Esau. That is the mystery of the sovereign God's choice in election and rejection. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. But it is difficult to understand, and people ask the question, Romans 9, verse 19, why then 
should I have any responsibility? But, says Paul, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You see, God warned both of them. Nebuchadnezzar got several dreams and warnings and was saved. And Balthasar knew all this, had another warning, and yet there can be little doubt that he received what his response deserved. That is the mystery of God's decision and our responsibility in our election. Now what are we then practically to do in the face of this mystery in Nebuchadnezzar's, Belshazzar's and our own life? The answer is, I think, relatively simple. Reflect upon the life of Belshazzar and heed the warning. The warning to take our responsibilities and the warnings serious. Let us see to it that we do not reject or ignore him who calls us, is what the New Testament says. And then reflect on the life of Nebuchadnezzar and be encouraged that the sovereign God will hold us fast, no matter how stubborn, weak or wrong we are. We may derive from God's word, also here in Daniel 4 and 5, what the canons of Dort called unspeakable comfort. Because God's election is unconditional. There are no conditions that Nebuchadnezzar or we have to meet. Otherwise, he and we would fail. And God's election is also invincible. There is nothing that can stop God from saving his elect as the life of Nebuchadnezzar shows. And God's non-election is also entirely just. There is nothing Belshazzar got which through his own actions he did not deserve. That's what we read. Those who God foreknew, he also saved. And we also read that we can never be separated from that love of God. That is what we read in Romans 8. One Lord, one empire, all secures. He reigns and life and death are yours. Through earth and heaven one song shall ring. The Lord omnipotent is king. The Lord is king. Who then shall dare to resist his call or distrust his care? Amen. Let us pray.